All right, folks, we are here at the Metaphysical Mysteries, and uh, we are going to do something that people have been requesting us to do, and that's to interview each other. And so uh, right at this particular episode, Tom is going to be the interviewee, and I will be your illustrious interviewer. <laughs> so uh, everybody kind of wants to know what we do and how the heck we got here to do all this crazy stuff. Uh, and so we will we will go down that line. And Tom and I have known each other for thirty years or so. Um, but we will we'll start out with what Tom's uh, all about. And uh, if you want to tell him, kind of give him a little bit of your background, so people know how you arrived here at this uh, Metaphysical Mysteries podcast. <laughs> well, thanks, Terry. I'm not sure if I can explain it myself how I arrived here some days. But uh, yeah, it's been a very um, winding road, so to speak. Uh, I have a very strange background, to put it bluntly. Um, I started off after graduation of high school, getting a college degree in electrical engineering. I worked as a radar engineer for a while, and I found that to be um, kind of boring. What was going on at that time is that during the evenings and the weekends, I was working part-time in the law enforcement and EMS worlds. And by contrast, it was just two different mindsets completely. And I remember the time I made the shift out to public safety for Korea. Um, I went to work one day and they were really upset that this computer program we were working on was about 15 minutes late. In the evening before, I worked a cardiac arrest where a woman was jumping up and down on a guy's chest on her front lawn and we had to tell her that that wasn't going to work and he was gone. And I just felt like some people just didn't get the whole concept of what's important, what's not, and the whole big scope of life. So that kind of pushed me down an avenue that I hadn't anticipated. Right. So, so you, were a, you were a medic at that time or uh, that was a police officer? I was working as an EMT at the time okay. as, as well as uh, a patrol officer part-time. Okay. And so that was the first foray into deciding, making a decision of which way you were going to go? Yeah, that was pretty clear cut for me at that point because um, I just couldn't see myself sitting in the cubicle. It was a great deal. You know, they paid us really well, good support, great career opportunities, but it just didn't feel right. So that wasn't the right place. Right. Good. And then what moved John from there? Uh, then it just became a career that, you know, moved through, um, eventually moved up the ranks in law enforcement, went on to become a medic and a medic instructor. And um, just really enjoyed that kind of work. Uh, as part of the public safety field, I dipped my toes into the public safety diving arena, which is where we met 30 something years ago. Um, and it just, the story kind of wrote itself from there, so to speak. <laughs> Absolutely. Now, I know you've uh, written some books and textbooks and manuals and so forth in the uh, public safety diving field. For people who don't know, that's an entire industry unto itself. Um, it's nothing like recreational diving at, at all, really. Um, it's like uh, flying a plane and one guy's flying a Piper Cub, another guy's flying an F-15, two totally different animals. So what, what drug you into the dive rescue type world and then the, the books that you wrote? Well, uh, actually, the way I got into the diving was I kind of got placed there, so to speak, by my career in law enforcement. So I took the job as a full-time officer, and early on, within the first month, I was reading the town resources to see what was available, and I found myself listed with another person as the dive team for the town. And no one had told me this, but uh, that's how I found out. And because of my recreational diving at the time, you know, had a, attained a level of what they call the rescue diver in the recreational field, they interpreted that to be public safety, which was completely wrong. Right. 
So I chose, I took the uh, initiative to follow through with that and go down that pathway. And I really enjoyed it. And I found it to be a, a 3d chess game, so to speak. Yeah. Absolutely. Now, you became an instructor in the public safety diving. And when did that all occur? Um, I got into it pretty early. 87 was when I became an instructor and I started teaching on the road for Dive Rescue International in 89. Right. So it's been a long career. I still do it today. Yeah, absolutely. Because I think back in those days, for those folks who don't know what Dive Rescue International is, it's the uh, premier teaching uh, company uh, throughout the United States and the world for that matter that teaches police, fire, EMS, divers, uh, even, you know, FBI, um, even the NASA, some of their shuttle rescue crews were taught by uh, dive rescue personnel. And uh, so it's, it's a very sought after position and, and you rose to the level of uh, what they call corporate level field trainer, which is at the top of the heap. Yeah. When we started, there was only, I think seven or eight of us there, if I recall. Yeah. Uh, now I believe there's over 40, you know, there were no trainer programs at the time. You had to just come and prove yourself and, they decided if you were worthy of carrying that forward, that message, and that you would do it properly. Right. And as time, was as, the key. as time went on, I mean, you got to travel all over the United States and, and see, you know, all kinds of different functions as it relates to police and fire departments, because they're all got their fingers in the dive rescue field. So that background is, uh, I'm sure, significant and giving you a broader view of how things are done throughout the world. It's been awesome to see the country and actually other countries. Um, where people have brought me in and trusted me to share some information with them and help them get better in this particular field. And it's always allowed me to share what I bring and then bring stuff home because uh, every class you learn something from somebody. I think the poor guys at our home teams are the guinea pigs for new projects. They just don't know it. <laughs> and uh, I know you've done some projects. I know uh, ice diving, ice rescue, that kind of thing was one of your projects. You want to talk about that and some of the books that went along with that? Yeah, you're exactly right about the team. I would come back and I would, we were a volunteer group. Um, people didn't expect us to survive, which was amazing because, you know, they were like, you do this for nothing. And they didn't know there was no funds for equipment training. We just literally, they were compassionate people that wanted to make a difference. <laughs> and because living up here in the Northeast, uh, ice was very prevalent, obviously, for us. We just took that on as a project and I remember wanting to teach the current ice rescue program that was in place at the time with the then president of dive rescue. And I said, you know, there's not enough meat here. He says, well, if you want to take it on, go do it. And I think he was shocked at what we produced from because we redid the whole thing, instructor manuals, videos, you know, the whole deal from A to Z and it's still being used today. Yeah. I've seen those and they're an excellent piece of work all the way around. And I don't think they really realized what you could put together, but you know, my hat's off to you because that's a great program and uh, people are still using it today. Those same principles and the videos were done very, very well. And I think that's, you know, says a lot about your character and your abilities and so forth and bringing together all that, what we now call incident command systems that, didn't it really exist when we started? We kind of had to make them up as we went, and we ended up kind of with a pretty similar type scenario that that is common out there nowadays. Right. It's 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 much different today. You hear people get into the fields, and the path has been laid out for them, so to speak. You know, there's funding, there's support, there's a recognition of the need. You know, when we started, the whole idea of a cold water near drowning save was foreign to many. It was just being talked about with Dr. Nemroth. And we've come a long way since those days where 
you know, he and I would be out somewhere giving a presentation where it was brand new information to now where it's just commonplace practice. Right. I've sat down and had a beer with Dr. Nemiroff before. And, uh, <laughs> you know, for those who don't know, he was a captain in the U.S. Coast Guard and he was a uh, diving physician and uh, flight uh, officer as well. And uh, he would be what we would call the father of near drowning uh, here in the States, uh, North America, for sure, where he uh, had documented these uh, cases where people had been underwater for, you know, 38 minutes plus, in some cases, uh, 70 minutes uh, in cold water. And so when we talk about dive rescue, it's all about the cold water near drowning, which means basically as long as the water is under 70 degrees uh, or cooler, you know, there's going to be uh, a mammalian diving effect that may uh, take place. Uh, the fifth cranial nerve gets triggered and blood is shunted away from the hands and arms, legs, and into the, you know, heart, lung, brains, and extends that time underwater. So when Tom's talking about that, it's that one hour, uh, golden hour, where people can be retrieved from underwater and resuscitated uh, with um, hopefully limited or no uh, neurological damage. And so when we got into that, that was brand spanking new. Now it's pretty much taken for granted that, you know, you do have an hour. Anybody who's anybody in public safety should know that, especially your EMTs and paramedics. They should certainly know that that's covered now in a lot of uh, different contexts within their training. So. Yeah, it's nice to see the transition. Who knows what tomorrow will bring with the advancements of medicine and such, extracorporeal rewarming, the hotline bypass, basically. They're finding that they might be able to extend that even further. So. It was nice to be part of that whole thing from the beginning and hopefully yeah. it'll make a difference in some lives. Yeah, we're getting about to the point where uh, we're about ready to hand the torch off to somebody else because <laughs> what you do when you're 24 is a whole lot different than when you're 54. Um, you know, the, the toll on your body, uh, diving in some of the polluted environments that we've been in, it's a wonder we don't glow all the time. There's been times it's been close. Because <laughs> when we started, we didn't have the all protections we have today. It was wetsuits and a uh, water inch poly line and that's what we had and we made it work much much different than what you see today in public safety diving right absolutely and not to not to really uh you know get too much into the whole public safety diving aspect but just both tom and myself are uh and we don't use this word lightly and we really hate the word uh, a lot but we're both experts in that field uh public safety diving and uh, so forth and some of the subcategories within that um and so with that comes a lot of uh, investigative understanding and, and a step-by-step -step analytical process to get to certain outcomes. And I think that brings a wealth of uh, abilities into this whole metaphysical field uh, that we're presenting today. Yeah, it's just a different way of looking at things, you know, having that critical mind and taking a look at some of these metaphysical experiences people have and coming at it, not just a carte blanche acceptance, but truly let's dig it out a little bit and see if it's verifiable and replicatable. Right. Proof, basically. Absolutely. So um, anyway, as we go on through the career, jumping past the dive rescue stuff, and uh, was there anything, um, I guess, your first foray into the metaphysical field, what, what do you recall? I mean, you don't have to put any names to it, but maybe the circumstances surrounding, uh, you know, the first time you saw something, what people would call weird, uh, what would that be for you? Um, I'm not sure if it's the first one, but it's one that stands out. Um, both my grandparents had passed and in the process of cleaning out the home back on the old Polaroid cameras with the film that would spit out the image on the bottom of the camera, 
they were taking pictures of the empty rooms. And in looking at the photo afterwards, there was the silhouette of a man in the photo, but there was no one in the room. So that was the first kind of like the jumps out at me, like, what the heck is this stuff? Right. You know, and obviously different things have happened since the, uh, I guess what we'd call the clear knowings and such, that sixth sense that we talk about, right. where you would get that instinctive feeling that something was or wasn't a problem. And you'd be pretty accurate as long as you listen to it. Right. That's what I found. Get out of your own way and it becomes clear. So in the in the world of metaphysics, we sometimes will spend excessive amounts of time and talking about the different clairs that people are, uh, you know, your clairvoyant, your clairaudient, clairsentient, on down the line with many different things. If you had to categorize yourself, what, what clair seems to come forward for you the most? Or I think it's just the sense. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I hear people describe different abilities that they have and I go, that's not me. I don't have any of those type of things. You know, they talk about seeing energy and whatnot. No, that's not me but I have the sense a lot of times of just knowing. Mm -hmm. um, I find if I can get into the zone, so to speak, I can have a conversation with people, especially when I'm doing clinical work and I'll start completing sentences and it kind of wigs people out a little bit when I do that. Yeah. So be like clear sentient, maybe clear cognizance where it's a clear knowing. Right. Yeah. Then a lot of people would like to get to clear cognizance because that's a big one. So um, when you talk about clinical work, tell us, uh, I mean, obviously in, in police work, you, you do a lot of interaction with the public and you become that counselor and you become the master of or jack of all trades, master of none, as they say. But um, so what, what moved you from police work and then over into the more clinical stuff? Uh, it started from the EMS background. Back when I first began, there was a doctor, Jeff Mitchell, who wrote an article in the Journal of Emergency Medical Services magazine back in the early 80s about things about peer support, essentially, different modalities. And so I learned early on that there was a need for that. I didn't quite understand it all, but I knew that it was important. So working in the ambulance service with my partner, we would talk about every call, both operationally and then just check on each other, see how you're doing. The other part comes back to dive rescue again, traveling around the country, be talking, teaching a class, and people will come up at a break or after and say, is it normal to see this little kid's eyes four months after I pull them up from the lake every time I close my eyes? Right. And so that was kind of the, uh, the entryway into the bridge, so to speak. So I went and uh, received training to do PS support formally. And about 20 years ago, I became part of a residential treatment program here in Massachusetts that just serves public safety military and their families. And that was really where I developed my skills because we would get people from all over the world that would come in and they'd be like the toughest cases where what I call the cup of coffee out in the field didn't solve the challenge. Right. And so they needed just a little bit more, some of the advanced psych trauma skills. And I was able to really kind of get it honed in, so to speak with that experiences there. So you, um, went to school you got your your licensed clinical social worker at this point yes right and so you're, you're retired from police work yeah and i always say people said why are you going to become a social worker i said what do you think i've been doing in law enforcement for all these years yeah people kind of don't understand law enforcement at all i mean i think you really have to spend time sitting in a squad car to, to get a full handle on it and and um otherwise it's just tv and you know, you're just kind of making it up as you go, what you think's going on, but it may not actually be anything relevant to what somebody's been doing. And you were in a municipal situation in the, you're obviously from Massachusetts. I don't know if we mentioned that earlier, but um, 
and you're around the Boston metro area. And uh, so, uh, but the going in throughout the police work, did you have any of the metaphysical experiences during the police work time or anything that may have come um, up during that? I think it was back to the knowing sometimes like you'd be working on something, it'd be a medical call and people would be going, um, this is not a big deal. And you just get a sense we got to go now or vice versa where people would be, this is really critical. And you look and you don't know what we have time. We're okay. Mm-hmm. And so it, I would find, I would get sometimes these intuitive feelings, if you will, that would go against what was I'm looking at. And they, if I just listened to them, they would be accurate. Right. And then we would get them in interviewing people and such, you know, picking out who was telling the truth and things to that effect. Nobody. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah, that being said, uh, yeah, you can get pretty uh, uh, jaded with things uh, when you're in law enforcement. What kept you um, sane, I guess, and believing that you could do something for people, you know, beyond the, the rough and tumble of law enforcement? Um, I always kept the law enforcement piece as a career not as who i was right so many people in their jobs they identify with the job if you ask them who they are they will tell you i'm so and so but they'll reference their work for me it was i gave it you know my all while i was there but my all didn't stay there right Other oh, things did. and oh. so the balance was important so um now that you've uh, been over into the clinical stuff um have you come across clients that have had, you know, metaphysical situations that uh, you've either handled yourself or possibly referred out to other peers in the, in the group? Yeah. And I'm finding them more frequently now. And I think that's more a sense of being attuned to it and being more open to it. I find that in the clinical world, people will seek you out based on what they need and you're the right fit. A lot of times, Uh, a lot of clinical work I've found is a mismatch and people try to force fit it. And you can't, if it's not a click, you just have to make the referral move on. Um, that said, uh, I've had some very odd cases in recent years that traditional clinical work wouldn't have got the job done. I had to dip into the metaphysical to, to handle it. Get it done. Yeah, that's, that's a real challenge, I think, for clinicians. And I know one of our uh, upcoming guests that we're going to have and people, listeners will be able to talk to is clinical psychologist, and, and uh, she's run into similar situations. And I think in the traditional sense, uh, colleges and, you know, universities and so forth that are teaching that, I don't know that they have people that are uh, spending any time talking about the metaphysical field because they probably just don't have any reference or any experience themselves. So I can't imagine they're putting a lot of that into uh, the college programs. Yeah. The classical training sticks with traditional modalities. We're just starting to see a bridge into the metaphysical or even just basic energetic work in in general. Um, I know that's been a huge challenge over the years because I've been practicing that for probably close to the 20 years Mm -hmm. at this point. Um, and researching and developing different techniques around that. But there's a lot of people, despite seeing the outcome, would be in denial of what had happened. And you still see that even today. You know, people will get the services, they'll have the improvement they sought, but then they'll sit there and go, I can't believe it could have happened that fast. So they're just kind of scratching their head going, what just happened to me? But I feel better. Yeah, I mean, the best one I remember, because I work a lot with the veterans at the treatment center and I worked on someone one day 
and dipped into the energetic metaphysical world and cleared their issue. And at the end of it, they were looking under my chair. And I was looking at him like, what are you looking for? He goes, the chicken bones, man, you're a voodoo guy. I don't know what the hell just happened to me. And we joke about it because that's been the nickname they gave me, you know, the voodoo doctor, just because of how fast we make the shifts. Yeah, absolutely. And I, you know, I know there is a lot of uh, energetic work going on in the sense of from a, from a science base to try to understand the whole human biofield that surrounds everyone, uh, vibration, light, all these things are being studied uh, now that previously they would have just thought was crazy to even spend their time on. But now uh, the practicality is kind of dictating, hey, we know this exists. And uh, so we're trying to delve into it a little bit more and figure it out scientifically. Because I mean, the mystics of old have told us this stuff exists. And uh, so now we're kind of forcing the hand of science and making science kind of uh, meet up, if you will, with the, with the ancient uh, mystics uh, interpretation of life. Right, which is the long answer, or the long way to get to the answer to your first question, how do we get to this podcast? Right. And it's really about trying to blend the science with the spirituality. You know, my background is very much science. Right. And, but I've had the metaphysical experiences. And so I've decided that my work is to bridge the two and then produce the education to help people understand that they're not so mutually as exclusive as people once thought. Now, I know you use a lot of equipment. Uh, can you tell the listeners some of the equipment that you use if they would show up in your place and you're going to hook them up to things or whatever? Can you tell them what that equipment is and what it actually does? Yeah, we have, I have a whole assortment of different things from around the world. Um, biofeedback, neurofeedback is obviously a big part of it. Um, that's accepted pretty, pretty much at this point of the game within the medical community. Right. I have tools that will measure the biofield the strength of it, uh, where the weaknesses are, where the emotional blockage correlates to those energetic disturbances. Uh, I have tools that can actually measure the chakras, the size and their position. And so that I can do a lot of before and after a treatment to actually show someone energetically the shift that's occurred by the work we've done. Um, Heart rate variability is huge. Come out of the Framingham study in Massachusetts years ago, it's a predictor of, of death, essentially. The closer you get to zero, you're in trouble. And so we can actually show people just by negative thoughts. Um, one person in particular, uh, we worked on four tour combat vet, special operator, just thinking of going from think of your good place, plus spot that makes you happy. 15 minutes later, think of something from combat that's upsetting to you. Now the person was in a safe place in an office, no threat to their being whatsoever, the heart rate variability dropped about 25% just by thought. So that shows the, the control the mind has over the body. Correct. You know, we always say, stop being a negative. It's wearing right. you down. And well, we you know, uh, I think you're, I mean, I, I'm going to jump in and say, uh, you know, I'm just reading some material. Um, this on the uh, current social warrior concepts uh, that are out there you know, in 2020. Um, and they were showing kids, basically, I'm going to say young adults and in their late teens, early 20s, um, and showed pictures of them. And then two years later, I uh, showed pictures of them. What happened in between them there was uh, these uh, social warrior type uh, websites, things such as Facebook or Twitter, where they were constantly getting bombarded 
with negative input. And of course, it's giving you a dopamine hit in your head, you know, you're getting your little high off of it, like runners get to a certain point, and they, they get that dopamine, I, nothing hurts anymore, it feels really good. Well, that's a positive one, you know, or watching little baby kitties or, or children or whatever, and, and you get a positive one. But the negative ones, when you see time after time after time, negative, 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 uh, it changes the brain to, to a degree. And then it starts to show on the outward face. And as you looked at these two pictures of the same person a couple of years apart one looked perfectly normal and happy and then two years later they almost looked like drained out meth heads uh what an amazing uh, transformation uh and they seem to attribute most of that to you know social media and uh the, being exposed to that negative hits all the time uh what a i mean i, and I don't think people actually that are in it, I don't think they realize that that's actually happening to them because it's happening so slowly um, until people have seen them that maybe haven't seen them in a few years and go, what happened to them? Right. And that's not um, surprising a study. If you look at the research, the most humans are wired up for negative thought to begin with. It's somewhere in the 80, 85% range. It might even be a little bit higher. I forget the number off the top of my head. But given two choices, people are going to go to the negative side. And so even watching the news is an example to what you just described. The first five to 10 minutes of any newscast, the six o'clock evening news, what are we watching? It's very seldom anything good. It's always the trauma and destruction of life. Yep. And yet we blame these newscasters for showing this material, but they're only showing it because of what? We're watching it. They wouldn't show it if we weren't watching because they wouldn't have ratings. Right. So we're creating our own destiny, so to speak, with this. Right. Well, even even biblically, you know, um, Jesus would talk about mind your thoughts. Mm -hmm. You know, it's the same thing. Uh, if you want to be positive, you got to have the positive thoughts. And people have been treated for cancer. You know, if they can, as some have been prescribed uh, funny movies so they can laugh and be in that good positive mindset. So they're really filling their body full of that positive light and uh, and having good outcomes afterwards. So yeah. uh, I think it's fascinating. And one of the studies that was out there, they talk about people that go to your point about the cancer and such, where people say you have X amount of time left. And those that weren't told, but they jotted down the doctor's prediction, turned out to be a lot of times wrong. Because once the person hears from the quote unquote expert that this is how much time I have left, the subconscious fulfills that. Right. And so what we're finding is if as a doctor, I said, geez, you have three months to live. I'm not going to tell you that. I'm just going to say, keep fighting. And you can extend that time a lot of times. Right. So it's a whole different mindset. We have to change the way we're doing medicine, period. Mm -hmm. So um, as it relates to some of this more esoteric uh, stuff, what would be one of the most uh, dramatic things that you think you've seen that people might be interested in? Um. <laughs> I have thoughts, but I don't know if they'd be accepted. Let's put it that way. Yeah. Uh, probably the, I'll say the craziest case. Yeah. So when I worked with your son. Yeah. Um, I was doing a remote healing uh, and he didn't know I had permission to do it. He told me a little bit about some of the issues. And I just, I always have on my notepad the date and time when I'm working with someone. I don't tell them because I don't want to put in their mindset that they should or shouldn't be getting better because I told them. I right. just see what happens. So on this particular day, I just said, okay, this is a good day to work on them. And I started working. 
And as I was coming mostly to the end of the session, I coughed and expelled a grayish smoke is the best way I can describe it. Mm -hmm. And um, it had a pretty kind of an nasty smell to it, bitter taste to it, and it dissipated within probably 10 seconds. Right. Well, to put it bluntly, it's get the crap out of me because I'm like, I'm on fire. What the hell is going on, right? I mean, so that was a new one for me. I don't smoke, never have. So I was like, I don't get this whatsoever. Right. Um, and we talked about it. And I guess there's actually some history around that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, he was vaping at the time. So that's uh, got that burn smell, that uh, electrical smell, that whole deal. And uh, making that energetic connection and then being able to manifest it a thousand miles away. Wow. That's cool. Um, you know, I know uh, when you talked to me about it, um, I made inquiries, uh, peers around the country. And, um, you know, most of them had never seen it themselves. They'd heard of something quasi similar. And the most they could say was they thought it was, might be an ectoplasmic mist. And uh, so the only person that really wrote has wrote a whole lot about it is uh, Arthur Conan Doyle, uh, author from back in the 1800s, uh, and talked about it, uh, how ectoplasm works, but uh, the mist portion was not really part of his study. I mean, it was really more of some of this uh, foam that would be protruding out of, uh, of a body, and they would do it on stage. And, you know, of course, there were some that was phony and fake and some that was not. Uh, but it's, uh, it's not something that you don't, you see very often in, in any realm. But it's because you have to have that really, really close energetic connection. And to do it with somebody else who's alive rather than what Conan Doyle was talking about was somebody who was dead and coming through you as almost a medium. If it, and, and in effect, that was some level of mediumship. It had to be uh, in order for that to even manifest itself. You had to be really closely connected. So I think that supports the science um, as, a, as a relevant observation because that's what you were attempting to do is connect energetically. And then there was a physical result, not only with him, because he hasn't been smoking since, and uh, the, no, not, not anything, no cigarettes, no he hadn't smoked cigarettes in a long time, but no vape, nothing. And then, uh, and if that was expelled, then sounds like a good thing. And I think we did check with um, a couple other folks in the more metaphysical field, and they, I think, confirmed pretty much most of that. Yeah, and I'm sure some of the listeners are going like, you know, he's lost his mind. Right? Up to now, it was credible, and now I just lost it. Yeah. Right? That's why I was hesitant to tell the story. Yeah. And I can tell you that was one of the hottest things for me to come to accept that that had happened. Because mm -hmm. it was really an odd, to put it bluntly, um, experience. Right. And very hard for me, having experienced it myself, to believe it, let alone share that story. Right. Which is, I think is one of the challenges and one of the reasons for this podcast is people are having experiences, maybe not this particular type, mm -hmm. but they're having their metaphysical experiences in various forms. But where do you go with that? Who do you talk to about that? You know, yeah. how long had we both been having those experiences until we decided to have a conversation despite knowing each other for over 30 years? And we stepped out and took a chance, right? Yep. It's like, yeah. what have you been doing and what have you been doing? And I mean, that's a risky thing because if the person reacts differently, all of a sudden they think you're not tied down too tightly, you yep. know, between the ears. 
especially coming from the backgrounds we come from, we see a lot of folks not tied down too tightly and uh, we don't want to be one of them. But I think the key is here that the approach that you take um, is not uh, what some people call woo-woo or airy-fairy. It's, it's really from a scientific approach. And I think that makes all the difference in the world and credibility you know, up until this point has been solid all the way around uh, for the both of us. So there's no reason for us to jump out on the limb and um, do some woo-woo stuff unless we've actually experienced it and uh, and come to a conclusion that there's something there that needs to be investigated or, or understood better. Yeah, I'm definitely not the woo-woo person. That's not in my wheelhouse. <laughs> I get that. So um, if as you uh, progress forward here, um, what things uh, are you hoping to bring to the to the podcast for the listener? You know, they're hearing uh, Tom and Terry talking. Uh, uh, if if something comes up a topic, what what are you going to bring to it that's going to uh, help the listener better understand? I want to try to take the complicated science and try to make it something that's more reasonable for people to understand. Um, I know when I was uh, working on this, there was Dr. Tillman that I was listening to, very high level of physics and you know, math and such that he was describing. And after about an hour and a half, I said, I've got a headache. And I'm thinking, I have an engineering background. How do people without that training listen to this and make any sense of this? Right. And so that's what I want to be able to do is take this stuff that's out there and complicated and put it at a level that I get it and I can use it. That's right. really where I want to take this going forward. Gotcha. Fantastic. And uh, your uh, doctorate is in um, natural medicine? Yeah, that's what I'm working on now, trying to get that wrapped up. Um, so it's the next logical step. A lot of the work I do, like I said, is with crisis intervention, stress management, resilience, all those type of things. And what I've heard in recent years is people talk about mind-body medicine, but what they've left out is spirit. If you're really going to make the changes, it's mind-body-spirit medicine. Right. And so with the work I'm doing now, we're trying to develop some new stuff, take what's there, really understand it well, and go forward. Um, a friend of mine has been doing similar work for 20 years. We developed a program about four years ago with the final phases of testing. We call it Fast Aid, and we've had it now in a recovery center that we've tested on well over a thousand people at this point with really dramatic results. Nice. So we're clearing issues without people even having to talk about them, which is for the traumatized, that's a huge step forward. That is a huge step forward. Now the, uh, I know out in the field, they've got um, EFT and TFT and some of these letters. You want to tell people what those mean? And I know um, clearly that's in the wheelhouse to use and you know, you know all about that. So. So the original work was Dr. Callahan, the TFT, the thought field therapy. Mm -hmm. um, that's what I teach. I actually co-chaired the trauma relief committee for around the world for a period of time. EFT came later. Uh, Gary Craig, he tried to simplify it. Um, part of the big differences, I guess, in a nutshell, is the TFT, we can do diagnostic work. So we can actually develop a tapping sequence around your specific issue. And Roger had worked with uh, affirmations. And there is some literature out there that say they can help. EFT is very strong on use of affirmations. TFT, we don't. Um, finding we haven't really had a need for it for clearing things out. And like I said, uh, most times within one single session, we can knock down an awful lot of stuff. 
give an example of what somebody, an average person might come in and, you know, you're going to try to help them out. What would they, how would you do it? And, you know, what kind of topics they typically come in with? So if they're open for discussion, some people are at a place that they can't even discuss their traumas, but that seems to be like the, the number one thing people seek relief on. There's some pain in their life, physical, emotional, spiritual, whatever it is. And they're just looking for relief from that. And so what we'll do is we'll identify what it is that's the challenge. And a lot of times with that, there's some sort of physiologic cue. It's either in the body or it's a memory such as a visual. Well, let me, let me throw one at you. Let's say uh, you were talking about special operators. Let's say you get a Navy SEAL in there and he's having this constant uh, uh, trauma about maybe uh, his best buddy dying in his arms and overseas somewhere. Um, and he's trying to get over that. How would you, how would you approach that with him? So there's two ways. If he has the capacity to experience it, we'll just bring him right back to the, the pain, so to speak, focus in on it. And we'll come up with the tapping sequence to clear that. What I have found is for I'm going to give you a timeout. Tell people tapping is talking about tapping in different places around the face. And it's tell so various meridians based on Chinese medicine. Okay. And what we have is people, and they still talk back and forth about how it actually works. Right. Are there blockages that we're clearing? Or are we just introducing energy into the system? Either way, it's working. So I'm right. good with this. There's a lot of research around it at this point that it's successful. It's actually a SAMHSA approved treatment a couple of years ago, the TFT was deemed. You tell them who that is. So that's the substance abuse mental health group um, on a national level. So they're looking for evidence-based practices. And the VA said it's okay to use as well is my understanding. They're getting there. Um, I've given presentations at the VA. They want to do it, but then they did utilize it. So there's still a lot of um, hesitancy in some places. Right. Because it's still weird, to put it bluntly. Sure. To think that I'm carrying a pain or problem for 15 to 20 years, and 30 minutes later, I can't even pull up a recollection of it, the image of it, even though I know it happened. So, I mean, there come the traditional therapy, though, is coming from that whole Freudian, Freudian sit-down psychotherapy. You sit here, I sit here, tell me about your story, and that goes on and on for maybe hundreds of sessions. If you're lucky, because a lot of mental health modalities, the, the thought process is don't let someone talk about their trauma. It'll hurt them. For most, and, and there are cases that would be true, right? Depending on someone's underlying mental health. The vast majority, at least people in public safety and the military, they're coming from a different place. They're talking to their coworkers, their buddies about it anyways. Not the emotional piece, but the event. Right. And so we just restructured that event. And then once we get to the stick point, so to speak, then we use the TFT or some other energy-based modality to clear those blockages. So explain it to people in life. We have experiences, good and bad. Yeah. If I say, can you remember, you know, six years ago this, you'll have a glimmer of it, but it won't be in your face. Right. And it won't be kicking you, so to speak. Right. The best one, the Navy corpsman I worked with, he described it the best. He had some uh, multiple tours of combat. And he had some stuff right in his face. And the way he described it to me is, I get up now, instead of it being here, it's here. If I want it, I can go get it. But it no longer runs my life. Gotcha. If we get that far, that's awesome. So let me get back to that, to the Navy SEAL just sample that, you know, 
not necessarily true. We don't have any characters to fill it in, but he's, he's sitting there holding his buddy as he dies in his arms. So I'm going to let you get back to that, how you would approach that. So we're going to um, have him go back to that time. And as soon as they do, they usually flash an image in their head and they have an experience in their body. Trauma gets trapped visually usually. That's how we store it. Uh, there might be a smell because that's the deepest memory of the brain. But there's usually an emotional tag. It gets stored in the body somewhere. With that, I just have them identify it. And it's more for tracking more than anything. I don't need to do it that way. But so many times when we do this, people go, that couldn't have resolved. And by tracking it down, I can go back. Well, do you remember 10 minutes ago when you told me you couldn't catch a breath and you were tearing up and you had the image crystal clear in your mind and now you're telling me you can't even get at it? I think something's happened. Mm -hmm. Right, So it's more for showing them the roadmap on the backside for believability. Mm -hmm. And so once we have that, we just have them rate how distressing it is to them. And I will look at the meridians based on the story and what I'm getting from them and their subconscious. We'll start to pull that in and just tap through the sequence in order to clear those energy blockages, so to speak. And what I find is a, usually a fairly rapid reduction unless there's some sort of limiting belief or there's something else holding it, which secondary gain type things. There's some reason that says, don't let this go yet. Right. And in so our folks, this is, something, this is something that a person really, really needs to be trained in before they attempt it. Yeah. I mean, I've seen people try to do this training online and such, and I try not to. Um, I know it can be done, but I find you lose some of the nuances that really make it successful. Right. That's my experience. I know there'll be people that would differ with that. So I always say, if you want to learn it, come on and sit in the room and let's get it done and we'll work on each other. Okay. And you're going to do your own experiences. So let's talk about, because this comes up a lot when we're talking metaphysics, more esoteric things. Let's talk about the negative uh, energies. And, um, you know, from a religious point of view, people might call them demons or gremlins or some whatnot, goblin. <laughs> Um, and I think that's a way that we used to identify those things uh, before we knew maybe the science of it all. But um, so if somebody comes in and they have some kind of an entity attachment is what uh, the word in the metaphysical field is, uh, how would you address that with uh, some of these more scientific techniques? I go back to the spiritual for that more than the scientific. Um, mm -hmm. I think it has a better success rate than okay. they're trying to do the tapping and such for something like that. Usually the hardest challenge is for the person to accept that that's really what it is. If I sit there and say, hey, Terry, you know, you have uh, this thing attached to you. You're looking at me like I, I've really lost my mind at that point. <laughs> and uh, I know when I started doing this work with people around entities, um, I blamed you a lot. I said I didn't sign up to be a ghostbuster. So, you know, <laughs> here we go. But I also... When I do it, I find it's empowering people to take back control of their own life, their own soul, so to speak, and take command of their presence. Mm -hmm. For whatever reason, they've given up some level of that, which has allowed the entity to take attachment. And so we just need to get that person back into a strong position, and for lack of better wording, to say, show them who's the boss. So when you see attachments or um, somebody describes them to you, where, where on the body would you say they normally would occur? I've seen them all over, but usually the upper half, you know, torso, head type area, front or back, doesn't matter. I um, usually don't see them around the ankles or anything like that. It's usually more in the life areas, so to speak. Right. Um, okay. 
Yeah, I think also when you're doing your interviews, you'll find out pretty quickly uh, if, if you can't see them with your own eye or third eye, as the case may be, or you can't pinpoint it. I think if you interview them correctly, and of course, being police officers, interview and interrogation is just part of a daily grind. You know, you just do thousands of them in a career, so you get really good at it. But um, I think it, that'll give you a good clue, maybe. And that's part of the challenge for clinical folks. You know, it's one of the forms of dissociation where people start talking in the third person. Right. So now we're trying to tease out, is it mental health challenge on the table or is it an entity challenge on the table? Right. It's really hard sometimes to differentiate the two. And yeah, it really can be. It really can be. So very good. So um, as we uh, go forward, is there people on that you think should be on this podcast uh, that are just like must-have people? I mean, obviously you know, this is going to be the, and it is, you know, a go-to place for anybody who's anybody in metaphysics, but is there some particular guest that you would uh, really like to spend, you know, an hour or two with just picking their brain? Well, there's a lot of people like that. Um, but I think in generalities, the people I want are those that can help us bridge the science and the spirituality. As I explain it, this is not what I thought would ever be with my life, right? This is what I signed up for. It's very uncharacteristic, so to speak, given my training and right. my tradition. I'd like to find people like that to normalize this for folks. Right. It's not just folks that are very historically gravitated to this kind of work and are very comfortable in this realm, but those that had maybe a little more skepticism towards it, like I did. When I first was learning this, I was very skeptical. Um, but have overcome that and now share their message because right. I think that's what we need at this point for people to understand that it's not so far out of the box anymore. It is there. And there are people that can support you in that experience. Absolutely. And I think, uh, you know, I think it was the Pope John Paul the second um, several years ago said uh, basically paraphrasing that science and, you know, religion uh, are not opposing factors they just don't know them know each other yet and i think that's kind of what we're doing is trying to pull some of that spirituality in with science and analyze it in a way that is more well analytical rather than based the analogy i use is a bowling alley science is in lane one spirituality is in lane three they're separated by lane two and as soon as we get rid of lane two they're going to realize they're still bowling in the same direction there you go that's a good one that, that makes sense. So, well, very good. Is there anything else you want to tell the folks uh, as it relates to the podcast? Man, I would say just uh, sign up for this, stay on board with it. We're looking to grow this exponentially. This is something we've talked about for a while and we're finally making it a reality. And that's a big deal for us. Um, we don't do things halfway. And right. so we're going to bring the right people to the table. We're going to make sure that you get what you're looking for out of this. Please send us your comments, your questions, suggestions for anyone that you would like to see. And we will do everything we can to make that happen for you because we want to give you the best knowledge and experience we possibly can in this room. Right. And I know both of us get asked all the time by people out in the field, you know, do we do any speaking, public speaking, or um, do we actually go out in the field and do what we talk about? And of course, the answer is yes to both of those. Um, and I know you're available for that and do it all the time. I do it as well. Um, and hopefully, you know, we'll be able to get out onto the stages and different 
parts of this nation as soon as COVID <laughs> clears itself up and be able to see some of our, uh, our fans out there and interested parties. Yeah, I can't do the two-week lockdown right now. So for me to fly, even though if we're allowed to fly, it's coming home and being locked in, not being able to get to what I need to do right now. So as soon as uh, hopefully by the first year, they're talking about having a reasonable vaccine in place and maybe life comes back to somewhat of a normal place again. Yeah, absolutely. And for those of you who are maybe watching this uh, in the archives, uh, hopefully we're well past that. <laughs> and it was just, it's just a piece of history. Uh, weird, a weird year, no doubt about it, and strange. But, um, and I think more of all that will be uncovered as time goes on. And uh, we'll see the truth for what it is. Truth always comes out in the end, and we need to be prepared for that. So, okay, very good. Well, folks, um, that's uh, Tom Greenhall from the uh, Boston area, uh, co-hosting with me on the Metaphysical Mysteries and uh, again, if you have questions, comments, by all means, send them in. We got the tmm at gmail.com. That's tmm at gmail.com. And we'd love to hear from you. So for all of us here at the Metaphysical Mysteries, thanks for tuning in. Have a good one. Should have cut that before I scratch my chin.